Welcome back, handmaids and fellow resistors. I'm just going to start calling us Marthas because they're the real resistors of the show. Yes, that's my real name. That's right. Welcome back, pop culture theologians. We have missed you. Um, We are so glad that you are here with us again to break down our favorite scenes and hear a little bit of shade from The Handmaid's Tale. Um, Marcy, where have we been? (laughs) So, hey listeners, obviously we have been MIA for a couple of weeks. Um, What started off with me actually taking a vacation ended up with me getting sick. (laughs) So I had a lovely two weeks in Cabo San Lucas, which was amazing. Uh, If anyone has not been to Baja, California, um, mazel tov to Mexico for fighting us off and keeping it. It is literally one of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, But when I got home, uh, it's been a bit of a struggle. I have some like chronic medical issues uh, that would totally um, have me executed in Gilead that have resurfaced. So I've been kind of dealing with that, but I am doing much, much better. And I couldn't wait to come back and kind of record these recaps and get back on schedule uh, as the Handmaid's Tale is kind of rearing up towards its finale. So, yeah. And as Marcy was on vacation, then I had to go away and travel for yeah, work all over travel. the time. I was going cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs all over the United States. And so, you know what, girls? This is how things happen. Life happens. Life happens. And then we both got sick. So, you know what? We're back. We're ready. And we're ready to throw some serious shade. So, you know, welcome back to the Pop Culture Theologians. We are two academics uh, merrily making our way through this world of... um, fascism that we seem to be in both on screen and off and of course trying to break down where we can and what we can um so make sure you're following us on social media at pop theologians on twitter as well as on facebook make sure you're following us on the engaged gaze um our our host website and i'm going to give another quick shout out to our sister podcast bible bitches because we love them and um they've been um always trudging along with us in um the proverbial shit so um instead of doing news so this is usually where i would ask like marcy what the happened this week week? i am going to ask marcy (laughs) what are three favorite things from the last two weeks of my favorite things so okay it's just in regards to what the fuck happened y'all have been watching the news for the last month y'all know what happened it's too hard to recap uh an entire month's worth of uh bullshit so yeah fun favorite things from pop culture uh my first one is i saw the film midsummer john did you see midsummer no, because I don't believe in um, torturing myself. <laughs> so Midsummer is a new horror film from the same director as Hereditary, which, John, did you see Hereditary? No, because oh. I don't believe in torturing myself. <laughs> we all know that I am the horror buff on this podcast, not John, uh, but it's Ari Aster. It is a fantastic film. I recommend it to everyone. Um, particularly because I think it is dealing with a lot of the stuff that The Handmaid's Tale is kind of dealing with. Um, I would consider my best description of it is a fable for women uh, 
facing the shittiness of mediocre men and how we can win. And like, that's maybe the, the most vague description I can give, but I absolutely loved it. I watched it twice. So, um, and I think I might actually be the May queen for Halloween this year, which is exciting. I was, uh, I did a handmade last year and the year before I did the purge. So I think uh, I might go to Shazam this year. Shut up. If you, I honest to God, John will fly out to see you dressed in a full Shazam outfit. That would be fun. I think I could do it. Do it. Do it. Uh, What's one of your favorite pop culture things that has happened recently? Okay. So I was traveling a lot and um, I have not been able to really catch up on a lot of shows that I love. I will say that I used to be one of those people that would just devour everything. was like, oh, I already watched that. I watched it. I watched it. Yeah. Totally watched it. Yeah. Like you. Um, But now because I am really busy. (laughs) It's so weird. Maybe I'm an adult finally. Um, And... (laughs) And, you know, we're doing so much um, and there's been a lot of resistance involved, uh, you know, activating. I finally was able to catch up on a show that I do love and that was The Man in the High Castle. And so... Such a great show. I finally finished the third season. It's going into its fourth season, which premieres later this fall. Um, It was fabulous. I love that show. I fell in love with that show immediately i know marcy and i've talked about it before but i was finally able to finish it i do love traveling because i can just download episodes and just you know per, like like just purge them <laughs> to I, use agree. I actually now um have a new category for films i have um movies i'll watch at a theater movies i'll watch at home and movies i'll save for my plane rides <laughs> so. exactly and i've been traveling a lot of cross-country plane rides like so yeah. six plus hours and so i was able to watch that and so that was one of my favorite moments and i finally finished homecoming with julia roberts so oh you really were behind my god I was, and I understand there's a lot of shows out there, but I, you know, I'm loyal to certain people. So I, that's one of, that's one of my favorite things. What about you, Marcy? What's another favorite thing? So another favorite thing uh, is Hulu dropped every single season of the UK's uh, Love Island. I understand that CBS has Love Island here in the US that is apparently extremely popular, but I live for British shows and I live for British trash TV more than I can say. Um, That show's been bringing me a lot of joy. It is literally like watching the Jersey Shore um, combined with real world road rules. It is so good. It is so trash-tastic. and as I've been sick, it's honestly one of the few things that has been making me laugh. I'm learning all these new terms. Um, I guess the Brits call a girl that is like dateable a bird, which is like such a weird thing to say. And then last night I, I saw a couple fight over um, cheese toast squares. And that's how ridiculous it is. But it's been extremely enjoyable. So uh, I recommend it to everyone. <laughs> that sounds fabulous. Uh, from a pop culture perspective, too, um, what an interesting kind of like great week for music. Uh, Little Nas now has uh, the longest running single on the billboard. So to have like a black queer country uh, male artist uh, take that spot is kind of wonderful. It's taking it from Boys to Men and Mariah Carey, which is great too. Um, I don't know if I like that song. Oh, no, no. I don't think, I I don't think it's prerequisite to like the song. I actually don't like the song. Okay, great. I'm like super happy for him. Like, go girl. Yeah, I'm like, do it. Get it. Like that song is so not my thing. (laughs) Do your thing, but, but quite great. Um, And uh, 
God. Like, it's just, there's, there's a lot, it's summer. So there's like tons of trash, there's tons of trash TV, tons of great music out, tons of great films. I will say one of the, my favorite things that does relate to our podcast, Marcy, is um, while we're out, they finally released um, trailers for His Dark Materials. Um, as many of you know, that will be the next season of our show later this fall, um, as well as they released the trailer for um, the Watchmen on HBO. HBO is just firing on all cylinders after they completely killed the world with the Game of Thrones final season. Um, go back to our previous episodes on that one if you want to hear really what we think. Um, but yeah, so I am so excited. His Dark Materials, you and I both love that show, That Absolutely. those books. Um, yeah. I actually do like the movie in some way, shape, or form, <laughs> and we'll talk about that when we break down the movie as a pre-episode to the start of the season. Um, but um, I have such high hopes for that show. And the actress that is playing um, the Nicole Kidman character, God, what's her name? Anywho, just... I love her. And so she was amazing in all the shows that she's been on in movies. So I'm just so looking forward to that show. It just gave me a lot of hope for like uh, uh, HBO's redemption. Well, and I think as um, like long times listeners know, like I specialize in breaking down children's lit. And so uh, that's my cup of tea. I just, I, I literally can't wait. Um, which means we should probably start our, um, our clicker for how many times I mentioned Harry Potter today. Oh uh, yeah. Take a it's, shot. It's interesting. Cause I'm like, how can I really put in Harry Potter in the darkness that is these, these uh, episodes we're recording. And it's like, yeah, I'll find a way. We'll figure this out. We'll figure so, it out. Don't so, worry. John, I think it's time to delve into Gilead. Let's do it. Okay. So we're going to start off with episode seven under his eye, which uh, an interesting episode. I'm, I'm going to say that the last four episodes, so seven, eight, nine, ten, have been interesting episodes for me, um, seven and eight in particular, because I feel like it's very strange to see a show do world building halfway through. And I feel like that's a little bit better uh, than, you know, maybe like continuing to dig into the same circles we've been digging into um, in the first couple seasons, but I'm, I'm actually struggling a little bit with where the show is um, as we enter episode seven. But um, let's start off with the fact that like Serena is uh, like house shopping, right? House shopping from like to going in and taking over people's houses they've destroyed. Which is interesting. So she's house shopping with Olivia um, I keep wanting to call him Sadler from SVU, uh, Commander Sadler's wife. Oh, um, God. So they're looking and like, um, I think that this is maybe the key to this episode. Um, the This entire episode, I think, is supposed to talk to us about how easily we can be swayed and corrupted by money and power, right? Um, and so I'm thinking of like, you, you know, like right now, like Moscow Mitch and like Ivanka and Jared and like, what does it take to, or, oh, a really good one would be, Jesus, why am I forgetting his name from South Carolina? Oh, Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham. Not uh, a nice lady. Not a nice lady. Um, 
what does it take, right? And so like Serena at the end of our last season was literally joining the resistance. She like gets her kid out of Gilead. She loses a finger for reading. Uh, and then all it takes is looking at these like super big houses in DC and some schmoozy boozy parties. And it's like, hello, Ivanka. Like she has literally drank the Kool-Aid again. Yeah, I I remember I think listeners remember that like I was kind of like pulling for Serena, but now I'm just kind of like, girl, uh you you get yours. Like you are you're gonna get it big time. Yeah, you and I disagreed on the fact whether or not Serena could be like almost like uh in recovery, right? And like exactly. And I'm like, no, no, like she is meant like, and I think it's because I live with Margaret Atwood's book, Serena. I've lived with that version of Serena for so long. I'm like, this is not a fixable white woman. This is this is not your ally. Like, this, this is not your friend. I would say that as these episodes go on, a good example to look at someone who is both victim and captor would be Commander Lawrence's wife, but not Serena. Like, Serena I is- love, as, me too. I know, we'll get there. I love Commander yeah, Lawrence's me wife. Too. But yeah, so it's interesting to see, like- just like a little bit of the Kool-Aid and you spend a lot of time in DC, right? Like oh God, it's very yeah. easy to just kind of fall into these circles of power. And then all of a sudden, like you just well, power is addicting, right? I it mean, is. That's the it, thing it, it about is. power is that once you think you're on the inside, you I think, love how you say once you think you're on the inside, cause you're never really on the inside. Cause you're never really on the inside, especially if you break down like systematic power, right? Unless right. you, unless you are a part of that, like 1%, you know, hegemonically, you know, like white male, you know, type of madman, straight. straight, all that stuff, type of representation of what, you know, the ruling capitalistic heterocystic patriarchy is right like give me more words like you know let's use our <laughs> academic words here you know and so you're never a part of that like you think right. you are but you're not but it, yeah as as a person who considers herself herself very privileged like i think this is a call out to like not forget that like every comfort i have every single thing is on the back of what right? Like how many compromises a day do I make in regards to um, my own comfort and my own kind of like sense of self? Um, And I think every single person deals with this. Like we live in an interconnected world. Like I am never going to eat a tomato that does not have labor behind it. And I'm never going to kind of like um, not be a part of this like kind of capitalistic system. But Serena's making a very deliberate choice here. um, And I think we are supposed to take that in. Right. So and Fred too. Oh well Fred from Fred is fragile. Like we've talked about Fred before. I'm like, I've met a million friends. They're just fragile men who are so desperate to be told that they're special, right? That they are special and different and have a a higher calling. And it's like that's that is so classically tragic. Like, like it's so classical, tragic and common. There's like, there's nothing more common than a mediocre dude who wants to be a part of a grander story. Why do you think like comic books are so, right? Like they just want to wake up one day and be Spider-Man. Like Commander Waterford just wanted to wake up one day and be a crusader. And it's like, yeah, nice dude. Mm-hmm. Nice. So back in Gilead, um, we see uh, what they call a, 
particution, which is like when the handmaids are the ones who delve out the punishments for crimes, right? Oh, yeah. Right. So there's this weird one where they're like all pulling on this, like, I think they're dismembering, like they're pulling on these like long strings and like, you know, we've seen times where this goes well, like in one of, one of the first episodes, you know, they stone like a rapist to death, but then there's other ones where like the handmaids have resisted a bit, you know, and I was thinking a lot about this, about like why these scenes are so important. And I think it's because it shows us the ways in which the system makes us feel simultaneously like release, but also complicit. So like here by making the handmaids be the ones who delve out punishments, if and when Gilead is ever deconstructed, the handmaids are complicit in torture, right? And like the system is set up so that they are, they can never wipe their hands clean. And this yeah. comes up in a minute with Emily when she's in Canada. Um, but it's also a way for them to get their rage out because the system also acknowledges that they cannot abuse these women in perpetuity without having some sort of way for them to release their rage. Well, it's another form of control too and of manipulation, course. like by making them complicit in the system of torture and pain that they themselves are you know already part of through the ceremonies and the rituals that right, are right. done to them on a month i think it's a monthly basis when they're like i can't remember the rituals because we haven't seen one for a long right. time but um it's a way in which they brainwash them continue to right and i think you know this is like a call out to like to us to look at the ways in which the system itself makes us culpable, even if we think we are not. So like a good example that comes up in my head is like, my taxes are currently paying for concentration camps, right? Um, like my money. And like, I have not withheld it. I am, I am in a way complicit in the system. I don't have a choice. It is like, I have to pay my taxes. These handmaids don't have a choice. They have to do what they're told, but like, um, it's an interesting kind of snapshot of the way in which none of us escapes the system that we are bound to, right? Um, which is what makes people who resist, makes people who rise above the system so much more admirable than we even get because like we never fully even kind of dissect our own culpability in systems of oppression. So um Moving on, we, we move on to loaves and fishes, which has become kind of like the place to kiki. Like yeah. every, every single time they need to have a conversation about something, it's like while they're looking at anchovies at loaves and fishes. So uh, Exactly. And like just big blocks of cheese. Just big blocks of cheese, like weird soup in jars. Like it is like a nightmare of a grocery store. I'm like, no, thank you. Um, if there are no Pop-Tarts, I don't want to be there. Agreed. Agreed. So the scene, um, I think most importantly, just is there to remind us that of Matthew uh, (laughs) continues to be this like righteous kind of like follower of Gilead's laws and how much that irks June. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that of Matthew is a very strange contrast to Serena. Uh, because we're again we're looking at complicitness versus like forced complicitness um 
there's this thing about of Matthew that June, I think, is struggling with, which is like, of, of Matthew's made a different decision to survive in this place, right? And June feels very entitled to say that that it's not the right way to survive. And, um, you know, I, I struggle with that because I think that that, first off, literally from a visual perspective and an identity perspective reeks of white feminism, which is like, you know, here's this white savior figure, like telling a woman of color, like the way that you are surviving is bullshit. You need to like, you need to resist like I do, which is extremely kind of like disturbing and all too common. Um, but also the, there is this like also like larger lens as a woman for me of like how difficult it is to not like judge those who are like judge other women who are complicit regardless of like our our intersectional differences who are complicit in systems of power so i'm re i'm really struggling with the june and of matthew uh dynamic which we'll get into a little bit more but as it's a woman, very pro it's very problematic yeah i'm really uncomfortable with it um i i think i honestly think that this character uh does a lot of harm to June, but I'm not sure if that is a bad thing um, because I'm not sure if that, which I struggle with because I've lived with June since I was 15 in my head. Um, June in the book is of no color and is, and, and does not carry a privilege. Like it's a very different experience via screen with this white woman who seems like Teflon, right? Like everything just bounces off of her. So uh, but there's a lot of black women that seem to get killed uh, during June's plans, which is extremely problematic. So, yeah, I it's very problematic of the ways in which we've always broken down, like you know, in Game of Thrones, white feminism versus you know, right. people of colors feminism, and I think we're seeing the ways in which June when how she even interacts with like the Marthas or she's you know what else she's, she's very limited she's very limited and is extremely blinded by um what as an outsider I can say is like white feminism and a white savior complex um but this book was written in 1985 she doesn't have like a set like nationality or anything like that in the book in the sense of like it being like such a stark thing so but moving on from Lowe's and Fishes we go to Canada and Emily, who, you know, we both love. Oh, she's getting her groove back. Well, yeah, but she's also, like, she's dealing with the fallout of having been in Gilead, right? Because she's, like, at the therapist, psychiatrist, doctor, or whatever, and, like, they're kind of, like, listing off her crimes. Like, so you ran over a a guard like you. it was like a best memories for me though i was like oh, right was i'm like yeah, those, yeah those are right, her, right those are her greatest hits like stop reading them like murder they're her greatest hits um it's a great look at how the view how we as viewers and how them as you know participants like they think that they are doing their best to resist but on the outside world in these black and white books of law they're still considered you know crimes right and i think again this is that critique of like um we we are all trying to survive and we all make very different choices right and like you know june has not run anyone over june hasn't killed anyone yet 
Um, that way, well, she's she's killed a couple people. That's I mean, she inadvertently. In a, I mean, because of her actions. Right, and like, um, and then we look at a Matthew who is like trying to to survive by staying as straight and narrow as she can, and then we look at Emily who like literally just like was like at every turn, I guess I'll kill someone, and like, and these are all women trying to do the exact same thing and doing it all very differently. Um, I will say that I think as viewers, we're supposed to sit with like, um, what, who are we after trauma, right? So who is Emily after Gilead? Like, what is she culpable for? Is she culpable for, for things first off? Like, is Emily a murderer? By definition, yes. But like, if it's surviving, right? Like, if it was surviving does it mean murder and then I think of the murder of the commander's wife um, in the colonies that wasn't survival that was rage but but rage is a side effect of abuse right and so I think it's very interesting to have these discussions of like you know who do who we become in trauma in cycles of trauma like um, who we are in like religious like cults I, I say this obviously for myself like who i was at that time is not reflective of who i am today but what parts of me are culpable for things that i did you and i have talked about this before like how do i make amends for having gone when i was like super super catholic to marches for life right that shamed women and did so much and like like how do i make reparations for that while simultaneously acknowledging that like i literally was brainwashed like i loss I don't I have like vague memories at this point of myself during that time because I was gone like I was just like not myself so I think that that's very very interesting um to break down Emily's kind of come to come to Jesus moment with like I am and I am not like I am a murderer but I am not like I am a survivor but I'm probably never gonna survive this right like it's even how people are complicit with um how even they're tortured when they're out of the system like because they're forced to relive the trauma that they're like i was trying to survive but you think that i'm a murderer right right and like and and that like as much as we um let's if we look at this like i've been thinking a lot about like the border crisis right and like how obviously uh under the trump administration but in general we re-traumatize refugees over and over and over again. I actually just finished, I don't know if you've seen the show, but if you haven't, you should. Um, years and years on HBO. Which oh, is, it's on the list. It so is, that means I'll watch it in a couple listeners, years. Listeners, it is fucking amazing. You need to watch it. Um, it is a, a damning critique of the US right now. It is the, like, I keep saying, I, I can't wait to see prestige TV in 20 years that takes on what we're living through right now. The Brits were like, hold my beer, we'll do it right now. And they did. And it's great. But they do deal with the migrant crisis and like um, just how we don't have systems in place that don't re-traumatize, right? Like um, we have systems in place that re-traumatize, re-traumatize, re-traumatize. Like you look at women who have gone through assault and rape and the ways in which getting their rape kits even like red is re-traumatizing the way trials are where they have to describe every fucking glory detail of what happened to them and so um i think it's a challenge to us as viewers of like are there ways to reimagine how we embrace those who have been hurt right on large systematic skills and also in our personal lives right like um like a good example is like if i know that like 
a loved one of mine has a trigger, like, are there ways for me to reimagine the ways I engage with them that doesn't accidentally touch something that is, a, is just too painful to touch, right? Or do I just kind of like bumble through my relationships and just kind of chalk it all up to like, we all have to deal. And um, I would like to think that those of us listening, like, can reimagine ways, micro and macro, that we approach trauma and, and healing for folks. Exactly. So from here, we move on to what I'm calling the child rescue caper gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is non- this is nonsensical writing. And I'm going to be saying nonsensical writing for like the next like two episodes of this podcast. Um, June enlists Mrs. Lawrence, who you and I both love, <laughs> uh, <laughs> who is, again, still culpable from what I can gather, but not in the ways to well, She stood by. She's like, we weren't going to do any of this, but she stood by. Right, right. Um, she was the one who was like, I'm not racist. I just hang out with racists. Um, looking at everyone <laughs> on Twitter who says, I'm not a racist. I'm just at a Trump rally. <laughs> Um, I'm not racist, but she should go back. <laughs> and you're like, right, oh, right, that's, right. that's yeah. not how it works. Right. So June enlists Miss Lawrence during one of her ups. So we know um, Commander Lawrence's wife has um, bipolar disorder. And from what I can gather, they have been smuggling in shipments of meds. So sometimes she has meds, sometimes she doesn't. But she seems to be on the up on this day. And June <laughs> decides to enlist her on this adventure uh to go and try to steal hannah from school which um john does it work no is that surprising no was it stupid yes (laughs) thank you i also think it is oddly on the wall she was like hannah i know i I was like girl i I wanted to talk about that moment the first thing i want to touch on is to a certain extent i feel like this is an abuse of mrs lawrence um, well, June does use Mrs. Right. Lawrence. She's using her in ways that are putting her in very unsafe situations. Do I think she owes her safety? No. Um, but yet there is a part of me that's like, you're better than this. Like, please do not use a mentally ill woman. Uh, but I think because I don't know her backstory and, and all I can infer is that she from the get-go has been like, this is a dumb idea, but I love my husband. Um, which, by the way, should be enough by, to get you, like, crimes against humanity. Um, but I don't know. I have a soft spot for her, and I'm kind of like, please just stop using Mrs. Lawrence because uh, it seems a little unfair. Like, but whatever. But let's talk about the scene you're talking about, which is when this rescue caper goes wrong, June is up against this wall that separates her from the schoolyard, and she can just hear all the children laughing, which includes Hannah, right, somewhere in there. Um, and I think this is a, how did you read this moment? In regards to, um, of Matthews, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Lawrence? No, uh, in regards to what, how do you feel like June is kind of taking this moment? You know, I just have a lot of problems with June overall lately in these episodes that I just, I don't know if my sympathies just shut off for her at the moment. Yeah. See, I think, like, I've disconnected from June as a heroine, which is really kind of not good for, from, a, from a viewer's perspective. But I think this moment at least is meant to highlight... Bring, to bring it back. 
to bring it back, but also for the first time, maybe June realizes she's not the only person missing her kid. There's a lot of kids and there's a lot of mothers with similar stories to hers. And like for a very long time, her focus has been like Nicole and Hannah, Nicole and Hannah, Nicole and Hannah. And it's like for a minute hearing all of those children laughing, which is supposed to be this beautiful sound according to our own societal kind of like children laughing is always equated with something real beautiful. It's horrifying for her. Cause she's like, my God, like how many mothers feel exactly like I feel in this moment? Like what, like, what am I supposed to do with this? And I think that's very powerful. Yeah, uh, I, I do. I, I mean, it is trying to be a redemptive scene for her, but I it's think trying to rein in her white feminism and her, her, and her, her privilege singular tunnel vision for her narrative in a world that is much bigger than her narrative, I think. Mm. Does it yeah. do it? No. The show is fundamentally about June, uh, similar to Piper in Orange is the New Black, uh, where every other character became way more interesting than Piper. And like, it's difficult to kind of rein it back when you're just like, I'm honestly more interested in the Martha Networks and Aunt Lydia and a bunch of other shit, but sure, keep trying to tell me that my eye needs to be focused right here. Um, I being no pun intended, but still. Um, so then would it, we move on to a public hanging. Yep. Um, and what happens, John, at this public hanging? Oh, June's grand plan um, comes to fruition. Well, she, and, June had asked a Martha for help to figure out where Hannah went to school, right? Yeah. And what we saw is June's understanding and thinking that she was... Um, in control understanding she wasn't for a few reasons one um of matthew turned her in she overheard the conversation that june was having with the martha that was looking after hannah um in loaves and fishes and she because of matthew is trying to you know live this you know pure handmade tell life um She's all about that handmade tale life. You know, she was right. trying to help and she, she saw what June was doing as temptation. And she believes she saved June. Um, but in saving June, she, she killed the Martha, meaning Martha. June killed the Martha. So I had such a visceral reaction to this scene because um, this is extremely common behavior in evangelical circles and in, um, like religious kind of circles of the, I keep thinking of like Mandy Moore throwing the Bible, like um, in saved, like I'm here to help you and throwing the Bible. Right. Um, it's like a classic scene, but this, um, this, this is very much almost like a tableau of evangelical saving language um, for any folks who have been in kind of like toxic evangelical circles. Um, like I know one of my friends, um, his sister outed him to his family and then um, subsequently like this caused a huge fallout and he was kicked out of his house. But when he talked to his sister, she was like, I was trying to help you. Like I was trying to save you. And like, I wanted you to not be tempted and like we needed to like intervene. Like that is the exact language that is used by off Matthew in this scene. So for anyone who has religious trauma, this scene is really difficult to watch because, and this is what is so hard, I think sometimes for people who have not experienced religious trauma to understand, of Matthew literally does not mean to hurt anyone at all. 
like at all. She she does think that that Martha did something very terrible. She does think she is saving June. She does think that she was being communal. This brings us back to that scene where Serena's mom puts her in that prayer circle. And Mm -hmm. where we talked about like Serena's mom may look like a total bitch in that scene, but she doesn't think she's being one. Well, it goes back to our discussion of the blue bus people from the purge. Right. And like the ways in which they are dealing with trauma or are complicit within that cult like narrative mentality. Right. And, and it is just so common that we in toxic religious circles are taught that shame is powerful. Like shame is a powerful tool for Christ. Like, so like if your friend is a slut, you, and I use slut from a loving place. Like everyone knows that like my biggest advice to young people is go slut it around, go get to know your bodies and people. So I'm not meaning that. Safely. Safely uh, and with consent. But if your friend, you know, is, is a woman of the night, expose it and then let the community take care of it. And like, if your friend is gay, expose it and let the community take care of it. And when you say take care of it, what we're talking about is shame. The communal shame can shut down people. The communal shame can change a person's like natural order and like drives or whatnot. Like, um, so, so yeah, this was like a difficult scene for me. Um, June obviously loses her shit, calls her a bitch. And then the handmaids in an interesting kind of form of defiance protect June because like June was like a chola she was like taking off her hat she's like I'm ready to go ya vamos let's fight right and like the handmaids they don't protect of Matthew they protect June um because they also I think so many of them know that someone like of Matthew is dangerous to them um like dangerous because every single little thing now they will wonder if someone like of Matthew is scrutinizing their behavior right it also shows us that the resistance is much larger than we think it is, right? Yeah. So, um, and it closes with of Matthew legitimately looking really confused, which is what we talked about because uh, she honestly, righteously thinks she's doing the right thing. Yeah, and knowing that June's coming for her. She's coming for you. She gonna find you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so. That is episode seven. So let's move on to episode eight, which um, is titled Unfit. Um, this I thought of you a lot during this episode because you finally got what you wanted. Was it the birthing scene? No, it was on Lydia's backstory, but let's start with Oh, the thank you so much. Yeah, for I, knew, I knew that you were like, Marcy, we need to wait for this birth. Like we need to wait in the birthing scene for Leon Lydia backstory. And I was like, I don't give a shit. Um, and Dowd is a national treasure. She really is. Like, we need to surround her with love and light the way we surround Buddy White. So, um, but this this episode does start off with a birthing scene, um, which I had just seen Midsummer when I saw this episode. And um, Midsummer has this strange kind of scene where all the women are grieving together and they are like, all together like 20 women going ah and like how it kind of brings them together and then watching this birthing scene where they're obviously the handmaids are all kind of with the handmaid giving birth but then all of the commander's wives are faking the like the the like birthing sounds together um and kind of it's a 
I think it's this interesting understanding that women suffer together and women experience joy together in ways that are very specific to to kind of like the female experience because toxic masculinity does not let men share with other men. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting, but, but this episode shows us that June is unraveling. Yeah. So she's, she's ready. She, she's ready to lose her shit. She, um, she's not okay ever since of Matthew, you know, kind of ratted her out and the Martha's dead. Um, so they're at this birthing scene, but then all of a sudden we're at a, I guess this is going to be a, a long birth. So the aunts take the girls to a gym. Uh, <laughs> I, again, this is bad writing. It's just weird. Um, and aunt Lydia shames June for her child caper because it was endangering Hannah. And then June takes that moment, reclaims her agency by being very cruel and dangerous. And what does she do? They spit in her glass of water. Oh, and of Matthews. Yeah. So all the, all the shady ladies. Yeah. She is like persona non grata. So when they're in this like sharing circle and Aunt Lydia's like, June, you endangered Hannah. That is shameful. Uh, June's like, well, I have something to testify. First off, testify is religious language. I I got the question. It's religious language. Like this is meant to harken back to like, oh, so of Matthew testified, I'll testify right here. Uh, let's go to church. Of Matthew does not want her baby. Bloop, drop my boop. Um, of Matthew has definitely tried to hurt her baby. It's like totally a scene of being girls when they're like It is it is yeah, it is such a juvenile reaction from June that but is I'm here out of for it. See, you're here. For, I, I thought it was out of character even for June angry. But that just shows how June's unraveling. That's why I'm here for it. She's completely unraveling, and meaning she doesn't know what she's going to do or who she's putting at risk. I mean, because yeah, we see, starting to we like, see the consequences of what actually happens in the next episode, and we'll talk about that. But like, this is like all going forward in that way. I was just kind of like, don't do this, June. And she does. And obviously all the handmaids turn on of Matthew because that is punishable by death, right? Like you cannot not want a baby. Um, and like, she's obviously now of Matthew is put on notice that like they're watching. This is extremely bad. Like um, she can be punished for having just thought it. Right. And so it's, it's just bad. And then all of a sudden we're back at the birthing scene and it's like, really? Like, what is what is this writing it's so bad um the baby at the birthing scene is born like a stillborn the umbilical cord went around its neck and june feels relief she's like good a baby that doesn't need saving that's great uh which is interesting because that this is giving us the narrative into where june's brain is which is it is better to be dead than in gilead and the second anyone and here's where i do feel sympathy for june the second any person starts thinking it is better to be dead than here is when they need help. Right. Yeah. Uh, It's when they're starting to unravel. Um, So I'm not going to take on suicidalness in a dystopian world because it doesn't carry the same weight as a normal world. Um, But I do think we need to be aware that June's head is no longer in a healthy space. 
But John, it's completely clouded. Right, right, completely clouded. This dead baby uh, gives us Aunt Lydia's backstory, and I want you to walk me through the life of Aunt Lydia. So Aunt Lydia was a hooker, and she was completely sex obsessed, and she was dealing a lot of drugs and murdering a bunch of men who were trying to, you know, just force <laughs> the patriarchy on people. And she said one day, she goes, Mm-mm, I don't think so. Um, and she fell in love with one of those drug dealers. But then she murdered him, and it was like, you know what? This isn't the life for me. I'm totally going to go start oppressing women now and become part of Gilead. See, that's what we wanted, right? We wanted, we wanted that had a ton of like fireworks and a bunch of shit. What we get is literally a horror story of, of Aunt Lydia, like yes. white lady who cannot give up a grudge. She is um, that neighbor from Bewitched. Yes, that is actually that is such a good way to describe her. Like she is legit. Like now, a hundred percent Dolores Umbridge. There it is, number one. So Aunt Lydia was an elementary school teacher. um, And she is, she's an elementary, she's an elementary school teacher. Who cares? Um, And so she was really taken with a student, Ryan. I'm guessing this isn't the first Ryan she's been taken with. Um, And her, the person, um, Ryan's mother is a single mom and who's really struggling, um, but is kind and trying. And, you know, it's just, she's not a bad mother. She's just struggling. She's struggling and she's, but she's, you can see she's open to help and, you know, like anyone is when they see someone like an Aunt Lydia figure who can like help them, right? Um, so Lydia throws herself um, into fixing their lives um, and becoming a mentor and a family figure for them. She makes them chili. I would totally eat Aunt Lydia's chili, um, even though I'm is sure. Is that it's... a euphemism? Because it sounds disgusting. <laughs> no, I would. I, I love chili. You're so Midwestern. (laughs) So so she, um, Ryan, um, even starts calling her Aunt Lydia. So it's kind of where the name comes from. Um, And then Noelle, the mom, you know, and Ryan and Lydia start getting really close. They have Christmas together and they share each other's things. And Noelle, um, the mom of Ryan, you know, really starts urging Lydia to get back in the dating game. She hasn't really been getting hers for a while. So um, Aunt Lydia goes um, out on a date with some generic guy. I think he's the principal at the school or something. Yeah, I think so. Right. And, um, you know, she gets all done and she looks good. Okay. Like I was like, Aunt Lydia put on that eyeliner. All right. And she puts on makeup and goes to the bar with this cutie principal and he seems to like her. Um, and they go back to her house and they, Aunt Lydia's like, I'm going to get mine. And so, you know, she throws herself on him and like, well, what's interesting is, yeah, she goes from like zero to a (laughs) hundred. Which well, because like, she's never, she's been repressed. She's been right. repressed by the society that Gilead is because with every backstory and with every new episode, we find out, um, I think, the forming of Gilead and all of these laws in certain ways. She clearly like, was part of a very American evangelical community because they keep quoting Bible verses at each other. Like they, they have morality laws and they have, they, she, you know, cues back to laws that are in existence that like right. clearly show like the formation of Gilead right. um, and where it's coming from. So, you know, she's trying to get with the principal, the cutie principal, but then um, he they, shames her. He shames her. He's like, because this is Gilead. Remember, he's like, 
you know. No, it's not Gilead. It's just to clear it up. It's pre-Gilead. No, I know, but Gilead like culture where Gilead adjacent. Gilead adjacent, like when um, June and Moira went to the coffee shop and they're like fucking sluts, like you don't have money on you, like all that crazy shit, right? Like you're seeing the like the very beginning stages of Gilead or how we got to Gilead, right? And so he shames her and she. she turns and she rages and she gets so mad and shames herself then and turns that hate internal but then uses it externally against noelle who she sees as a bad mom and she, she doesn't noelle. she just i think she's she's slut shaming noelle for the shame that she was made to feel yeah, she so takes she's, it out on her yeah she's like you made me you turned me into a sexual monster because and that's how women made- hurt other women to uphold right. the patriarchy right and so she basically turns Noel into CPS for endangering Ryan. And the kind of last scene that we really see is Noel being taken, you know, away by, I think it's school security because, you know, awful. CPS is there and calling her a horrible person and all this stuff. And, you know, that's really um, where Aunt Lydia became Aunt Lydia. Well, and like, I think like, we've, we've talked about this quite a bit when we've discussed Dolores Umbridge and what she stands for in Harry Potter, right? And like, um, the people who aid oppressive evil structures are not always the monsters under the bed. They're the day-to-day folks, right? Like, yeah, the monster is oftentimes not the one in the closet. It's the one right in front of you. Right. So here's a teacher who oversteps her boundaries because she is obsessed with the idea of like communal responsibility, which is what we were talking about um, before with like of Matthew. She's obsessed with this idea of community with Christianity, um, but evangelicalism and um, trying to find it like a word that's all encompassing. So all kind of conservative evangelicalistic approaches to modern American Christianity have this idea of communal responsibility. We see her over several bounds with a single mom because single mom is the first strike, right? Second is that like, she's not performing femininity correctly. So like they eat fast food instead of eating like normal food. Like she's, you know, working jobs instead of staying home and like falls in love with this woman, sees her real humanity. So like we, Aunt Lydia has it breakthrough that like, just because this woman's a single mom and was like struggling, doesn't mean she isn't great, falls in love with like her and Ryan and like brings them into her heart to the point where we have this like awful like kind of mirror moment where Ryan does say like, hey, Aunt Lydia, and like only we the viewer know how horrible like that is looking forward, right? Um, And then the second Lydia makes herself vulnerable to a man, a man who is also part of this toxic religious environment he reacts like of Matthew and is like, the fuck are you doing? Showing any type of like sex, like any type of sexuality, like that is gross, that is disgusting. And instead of Lydia holding her own and being like, I'm sorry, like, I thought you were interested. Don't fucking slut shame me. She like tears the, another woman down because she can't possibly attack the man who just shamed her. And like, we sit with these screams from Noelle, Ryan's mom, of like, how could you do, like, how could you punish, like, she doesn't even know what she's being punished for. Like, she's literally gone from this beautiful Christmas night where she bought Aunt Lydia some makeup. Um, they obviously, like, love each other enough that they call her Aunt Lydia. 
to like this fucking Dolores Umbridge calling CPS and being like, take her kid. And the fact that she has the power to do that also is there to remind us that the systems that we've put in place for protection sometimes are not protective. So I'm thinking of like child protection services, obviously the cops, like um, as someone who does like racial equity work, there's nothing worse you could do for your neighbors or for your loved ones uh, statistically than to call a cop. And yet that is a system that we have set up that is supposed to protect us, but statistically it doesn't. CPS, um, and I have friends who have worked for CPS, like notoriously fails children, fails its workers. And you like- don't say. And like, and so it's just like, it's this awful, awful backstory because there's nothing about it that couldn't happen today. Like it is not dystopian. It is just a, a classic, vengeful, like, like small woman taking out her fury of feeling inadequate and shamed by men on another woman. Yeah. It's gross. It like, it literally gave me like, uh, I don't even know how to, I have a word for it in Spanish, but like, I guess I was really discombobulated after it. Yeah. Well, then we go back to our favorite store, loaves and fishes. And Aunt Lydia is ready to talk to June to relocate her out of the Lawrence's house. You know, it's probably time for her to, you know, be with another um, family and have another baby. Well, and we know that like everyone's onto the fact that Commander Lawrence may or may not be not actively participating in life in Gilead. Exactly. And so Marcy, why don't you walk us through the final scene? So I thought this scene was shot beautifully. As Aunt Lydia comes in, you we get one of the million pan shots of June's face, which I'm getting tired of. Where she <laughs> Do you think she looks angry? I I'll be honest with you, I think she looks re- this whole scene. I think she looks relieved, which means in my head She's enjoying it. Yes. She so enjoys it. That's why I love she's this. She's unhinged. So she sees yeah, Aunt Lydia right. come in and she's like, All right. And she sees the the guards come in with their metralletas, sorry, their um machine guns. <laughs> and um <laughs> I, I only refer to machine guns in Spanish. I don't know why. Um <laughs> blame Medellin in the 90s. Um but this scene, we as the audience think, oh, this is about Aunt Lydia and June, but all of our cruelty in this world has consequences. It's like a domino effect, right? And this scene is, is like watching one domino hit the other, hit the other, hit the other. So Aunt Lydia comes in, June looks at her, of Matthew misreads the situation like they're coming for her. She's so full of rage that she ends up beating she she turns her rage not towards the system not even towards aunt lydia not even towards june hits poor fucking janine who by the way has had more sustained blows than anyone else on the show how she is she is still so stunning and beautiful and amazing and a space pirate i will never know um but she hits janine then hits a guard grabs his gun and then points it first at aunt lydia this is all happening within seconds of each other Points it at Lydia, and then we get another pan shot of like June, who has taken this all in like it is some type of slow mo, like film, and she you you see her kind of smile, which to me is 
she's gone she's she's lost it she's also to a certain extent ready to die because she's like she's ready to die and i think as a viewer and as as a viewer that is very scary to me um and i'm also tired of watching cycles of june be beat up and then rebirth beat up rebirth beat up rebirth like she's not fox the phoenix right like at some point like you either have to let her die or you have to let her make strides in the resistance like this season has done nothing but spin wheels on getting june nowhere and i think that that is extremely frustrating but so we're thinking june's about to get shot uh, and then the shots uh, actually come for of Matthew. She's shot by some other guards, and sh- her she is dragged out. Her body's like bleeding, um, and some Doris Day uh, bullshit music comes on. And uh, oh, I love this ending though. I thought it was so good. <laughs> <laughs> it, no, I'm t- it is one of the more beautifully shot scenes in this entire season. Um, it, it is beautifully choreographed. It is it's meant to make you kind of look everywhere and take it all in. Um, I just, I, I need this, I need this episode to go somewhere interesting. Um, and it does. So, but that is, that is the end of episode eight. Um, so that's the end of this recap episode of seven and eight. Um, some troubling episodes where we are some troubling episodes but we got you know i always try to think of you know similar to to game of thrones like for every time you for every three times you hit me i need you to let me win something so we do i do think if you look at these two episodes um we we've we got hit a lot there was a lot of bad but we did finally get that crumb of aunt lydia's backstory which we were waiting for um so that was important. Loved we had been it. waiting a long time for that. So, um, and it so didn't that, disappoint. In, no, in not at all. I thought it was it was perfect. It was like such an homage to like, you know, like I'm trying to think of what what their names are. Jesus, um, who the the women who love to call cops on black people? Um, oh, like the like those Beckys. Yeah, all those Beckys. Like she is that Becky, and like um, like barbecue becky or like sidewalk sally like there's she's just i forgot about that one right like she's just a she she just is herself uh she doesn't need an evil backstory there is no evil backstory she's just herself and that was important she's white and privileged there we go that's the backstory that's the backstory all right y'all so we'll we'll be back with episodes nine and ten uh thank you so much for being so patient with us um y'all i needed that vacation but i appreciate y'all really but you did not need that hospital stay i did not and i'm really hoping for no more um but i think we're heading to a hospital stay for our next episode so let's do it uh, see, see you all soon Blessed be the fruit.